This week, the Comics Guys explain Fawcett Comics. Part 1. Thank you, Ben. And yes, this week we'll be talking about a uh, topic that I am super interested in because I personally know almost nothing about it, um, except for a few of the characters. Uh, The history of Fawcett Comics, um, where uh, most recently, most people I think know about it, is uh, Shazam. Uh, but there's a whole deep history uh, there of uh, his pre-DC uh, life. Um, so, Darren, uh, what should we know about Fawcett Comics? First thing to know about Fawcett Comics is uh, Billy Fawcett himself. Wilford Fawcett uh, is the guy who started the company. And it wasn't a comic book company first. That was the, a thing that they got to later. Um, but Billy Fawcett is another one of those kind of just like characters of the early days of comics, right? Like he's just this absolutely fascinating kind of crazy guy who had this the amazing life. So we're going to go through him a little quickly first, just to kind of like set the stage for when Captain Marvel and the rest of the heroes show up. Publishers were just much wackier back in the day. It's, yeah, well, you know, and this was an industry, like, pulps and comics in general was an industry that attracted crazy people, right? Like, it was, you know, it, it was not a standard way to make a living. There was a lot of money to be made, as it turned out, but, you know, you had to be a showman to, to do it, right? And uh, Billy Fawcett was, in fact, uh, a showman in the, in the biggest way. So he's, uh, he's born in Canada. He's born in Woodstock, Ontario in uh, 1885. He is the third of eight kids. Uh, when he is three years old, his family moves him to North Dakota, which is where he grows up. He is, uh, you know, as a teenager, he's kind of, he's a ruddy little kid. He's, uh, he, he's, he's a tough kid. I mean, he grows up in, you know, kind of like in, in a, a tough town in the Midwest kind of thing. Um, but he's short. He's about five foot five when he stops growing. Uh, and uh, he gets, he's sick of school. He's not very good at it. And, uh, you know, or he's smart, but like bad at paying attention. And he finally uh, runs away from home when he's 16 years old lies about his age and joins the army as was kind of a you know like popular place for runaways to wind up going to so he joins the army when he's 16 it's now 1901 and his first assignment after his training camps is they send him to the philippines uh because uh america has just finished fighting the spanish-american war um and has an occupying force in the philippines where he winds up serving from uh, 1904 to 1906. So he's 21 when he's ready to get out of the Philippines. He actually loves being in the army. The army is, as far as he's concerned, like the ideal perfect job. Uh, he, you know, he has a, a set set of things to do. Um, he gets to shoot guns. He's really good at shooting guns. He's an excellent, uh, you know, like a marksman uh, with a rifle. Um, and it's just the manliest uh, collection of you know guys being guys that uh, he can he, he can imagine. He's absolutely thrilled to be there. He gets an injury in the Philippines, not in combat. He never sees combat in the uh, in either place. He winds up, um, but he gets hurt uh, actually in a um, the, basically the falls out of a you know uh, uh, falls out of a vehicle in a uh, practice. Basically, um, returns to the U.S. at the age of twenty one and moves to Minneapolis. There, he meets a nice girl named uh, Claire, marries her, 
they have five kids over a five-year period from 1908 to 1913. He's got a set of twins that are the oldest. Uh, and the two youngest boys uh, are Gordon and Roscoe. Those are the ones that will, you know, you want to make a note of because they're going to show up again later. Um, but in those, uh, you know, like I said, in five years, he has five kids and he gets a job uh, being a police reporter. He starts as a cub reporter for the Minneapolis Journal. And he's basically running the works at the crime desk. He's one of the writers, you know, for the for the journal, just kind of like getting information from the cops and, uh, you know, putting uh, just the, the police reports and that sort of thing in the paper. And he's quite content doing that, too. He's pretty good at it. Uh, he's a he's a decent writer. Um, he likes the excitement of hanging out with cops and going to crime scenes and interviewing people and that sort of thing. Um, he's, you know, he, 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 he kind of craves excitement in his life and, uh, being a police reporter is, you know, one of the ways he kind of satisfies that. America enters World War One uh, in, uh, 1917. Now he's, you know, in his early thirties, uh, you know, like I said, with five kids, but he re-enlists starting again as a private, basically and uh, is sent to Camp Georgia, Virginia. There, he has two jobs. One, he's teaching marksmanship because he's an excellent, like I said, uh, excellent shot with a rifle. The other job that he takes while he's there is he starts writing for Stars and Stripes uh, magazine, that the, you know, the newspaper uh, that uh, was uh, issued to soldiers. And he, uh, he does a bunch of different gigs, a bunch of different jobs for Stars and Stripes, but the one he likes best is the humor page, right? Where he would actually just kind of like write down the jokes that soldiers told each other, uh, you know, like while in training and that sort of thing, um, and make a, you know, like page of dumb puns, uh, jokes that were just kind of like this shy of dirty, you know, like about chasing girls and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, still well within what was uh, considered acceptable, you know, in, in, in a newspaper at the time, but always just kind of a little bit pushing the edge of, you know, like what you could get away with. And that the stuff that he did, once again, was enormously popular with the other soldiers. You know, they thought he was a riot. He gets promoted two or three times uh, while World War One is going on, um, wins several army competitions, becomes one of the best target shooters in his division, and rises to the rank of captain. Uh, so when he comes back to Minneapolis after the war is over, uh, now in 1919, uh, or uh, in, yeah, in, uh, end of 1918, basically, he now has a new nickname. Uh, everybody is going to call him Captain Billy, and that's his nickname basically for the rest of his life. He uh, he misses the army. He misses all of his army buddies and everything. And so he decides his next uh, you know thing he's going to do with the money, the, the paychecks that he got in the army, is open a bar in Minneapolis, which he does. Uh, sinks pretty much all of his money into it. It's called the Army and Navy Club. Um, and he's, you know, wants all of his military buddies, uh, you know, in the Minneapolis area to come hang out at his, uh, at his bar and everything. And he's... Uh, uh, very happy with it, except, of course, uh, if you're watching the calendar, he has spectacularly bad timing in doing this. His bar is open for about four months when Prohibition gets passed. And uh, his bar pretty much uh, immediately has to shut down because they weren't doing anything besides serving alcohol, right? Like it wasn't even a restaurant or anything. It was literally just a drinking club. 
Um, and so uh, the money that he has sunk into this bar uh, is basically lost. He can't afford uh, you know, to keep it open. And he's infuriated. Uh, he thinks prohibition is a terrible idea. Um, and he becomes kind of like a, a bit of a crusader against it. So he's kind of casting around for what else he's going to do. And he says, you know, the most fun I ever had was writing those dumb joke pages and that sort of thing uh, for uh, Stars and Stripes, right? Like writing the humor columns and the, you know, the just the these bits. That, that was, I was really good at that. And so he decides to start a magazine. And the magazine will be called Captain Billy's Whizbang. Um, Captain Billy, obviously being him, Whizbang being uh, the name, the joking name that World War I uh, Allied soldiers, U.S. soldiers, had for German artillery. They just called them Whizbangs. Um, and so that was yeah, uh, uh, the, the, the title that he gets for it. Um, and the first two or three issues of it are basically... Re, you know, redoing the kind of things that he did for Stars and Stripes, right? Like it's a bunch of jokes. It's a bunch of, uh, you know, general articles about manly things like being a soldier and traveling around the world um, about guns in particular. Once again, he's, you know, huge fan um, about hunting and that sort of thing. And a lot of political complaining uh, about prohibition and how prohibition is just the worst idea and we'll make fun of it and we'll organize uh, you know, citizens to try to get it repealed and all that sort of thing. Um, it's a completely out of nowhere smash hit as a magazine. Uh, within months, it's selling hundreds of thousands of copies. By 1923, it's selling 400,000 copies a month, um, which is just an outrageous number. Uh, you know, it becomes tremendously popular. It's kind of got a, you know, the sensibility of it. If you read some of those early issues, and I've gone back and read a couple of them for this, um, it's almost like you can see the beginnings of Mad Magazine happening, right? Like you can see that kind of like anarchic sense of humor, um, that kind of like joy in breaking the rules and that sort of thing. And like I said, it, it goes, it walks right up to the borderline of telling dirty jokes, but never quite kind of like steps over it, right? Um, and so it becomes phenomenally popular with, you know, well, with men, basically. You know who'd like this? Men. Um, it becomes very popular with kids wanting to appear older, right? Like a sizable portion of the people actually reading Captain Billy's Whizbang are kids who are getting from it like dirty jokes to tell, you know, the kind of humor that like is in a pool room that they're not allowed into yet. Right. You know, and uh, so they kind of, you know, like a, they, they pick up slang from it and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of humor that Captain Billy and his fellow writers are, are throwing into this. Um, if you are familiar with the, with the musical, The Music Man, uh, the play, The Music Man, there's a reference to Captain Billy's Whizbang in the song Trouble. You got trouble. Uh, where they're actually asking, you know, like, how, are, are your kids hanging around pool halls and that sort of thing? And are they learning jokes? Are they memorizing jokes from Captain Billy's Whizbang? Is actually a line in the play. Um, so it kind of, you know, it has that kind of pop culture feel for it, right? So suddenly he's quite wealthy, right? Like he had never had any particular amount of money before, but within a year and a half of starting this magazine, money is just pouring in. Right. And 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 
you know, he, he doesn't really quite know what to do with it all. Um, he divorces his wife. Uh, and uh, at, at that point, though, he stays on kind of on pretty good terms with her for the sake of the kids. Um, most of the kids at this point are between like, you know, eight and 13 or whatever. They're starting to get, uh, you know, they're off in school and that sort of thing. Um, but he, uh, he, he stays reasonably close with her. He also has, uh, the business is growing wildly out of control. So he hires two of his brothers. One is his brother, Roscoe, who he names, named one of his sons after. And the other is his brother, Harvey. And his brother Harvey was of all of the uh, you know the eight kids the the his seven siblings and everything was the troublesome one right was the one who was always in trouble uh, with the law that sort of thing he'd had uh, you know he'd, he'd done a couple of like short stints in jail and had uh, assorted problems and Captain Billy decides to hire Harvey uh, to work for him and that will you know help straighten him out right he'll he'll uh, you know get some he'll, he'll get a chance to have a good job or whatever. Uh, that lasts until 1922, when he suddenly learns, realizes that Harvey is stealing money from him. Harvey has been siphoning cash out of the uh, out of the company, and he can't really bring himself to sue him, but he does fire him. Um, and so Harvey basically uh, takes his ill-gotten goods, the money that he took out of the Captain Billy, uh, you know, operation, out of the Whizbang uh, uh, funds and that sort of thing, and takes off to Canada moves to Calgary and starts his own publishing company up there. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll come back to this too, because, uh, you know, Har Harvey's not done messing with him basically. Um, but now, you know, Billy and Roscoe and, uh, you know, his, his assorted other employees, uh, you know, they, they, they have a company, right? This is, uh, this is their business and it's much more successful than they thought it was going to be. So they start, uh, creating new magazines, right? Like, uh, you know, pulp magazines are all the rage in the U.S. in the early 20s. Uh, you know, pulp news newsstands are, uh, you know, popping up all over the country in every major city with a big rack of magazines that are, you know, have uh, photos and stories and that sort of thing. And so uh, Captain Billy uh realizes that he's not like a great editor or a brilliant you know writer or anything like that um he's good at you know the joke telling side but he hires other people and he knows how to hire professionals to come in and make magazines for him uh the first one he hires is a guy named Jack Smalley uh who is a well-known pulp editor uh to put together another magazine for him and that one will be called True Confessions uh, which is basically a set of, you know, uh, every month a, a series of stories by people telling, you know, about the various, uh, you know, inappropriate things that they have done in their lives to this point. Always with kind of like a tone of, well, I know better now, but let me tell you about the terrible thing I did when I was younger, right? So you get kind of like both the uh the 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 entertainment of hearing the story about the criminal or the per the you know the woman who had uh you know premarital sex or the guy who drank too much etc cetera, etc cetera, always with the tone of and now i'm better right so you could you could kind of like pass it off as well we're telling these kind of redemption stories but really nobody cared about the redemption everybody just wanted to hear you know like the trashy lurid uh, you know, story of how they got into the trouble in the first place, not how they got out of it. Uh, True Confessions also becomes a smash hit and by the early 1930s is selling 2 million copies every month. 
uh, for the next few years, Captain Billy kind of like oversees this empire uh, and begins several other magazines that will go on to be tremendously famous. Uh, well, he starts Mechanics Illustrated in 1928. Context, what's what's two million like at at this time? Like it's a bestseller. It's one of the you know five or ten best-selling magazines on the stands. Okay, it's sense. a little less. I mean, like Life is bigger. You know, right. uh, uh, Time Magazine at the time might be bigger. Uh, you know, Saturday Evening Post, but I mean, not very many, right? Like True Confessions was absolutely one of the just, just quite not scandalous, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. I uh, just wanted to, to, you know, get that all in uh, in context. Right. These these are hits. You know, each each one of these that I'm mentioning is a is a genuine, honest to goodness hit that any other company would be delighted to have. Right. He goes into partnership with a uh, supermarket chain with the Piggly Wiggly supermarket chain uh, to create a magazine uh, that will be distributed free at the uh, at the supermarket, right? Um, and uh, will you know feature ads from the from the supermarkets and have a bunch of coupons and then have stories uh, about uh, you know just your family life for suburban housewives that sort of thing. That magazine is called Family Circle, and you know continues to be sold today. 90 years later, um, it went from being distributed free at grocery stores to a for sale newsstand product uh, after World War II. So the first 15 years that Family Circle existed, it was free as a magazine. It was paid for basically by the by the supermarket chain uh, are the ones who paid Captain Billy to, uh, to, to make it because it was such a great promotion for their products. He did detective comics. He did Western comics, uh, not co comics, but pulps, magazines, detective magazines, Westerns, uh, men's adventure stories of various sorts, Hollywood gossip, uh, movie magazines, that sort of thing. Um, did not usually go for, the, the one thing he didn't kind of go into was the um, Amazing Tales levels of like fanciful science fiction or fantasy stories, right? That he didn't think he was good at that. He didn't really have an eye for it. And so uh, when he was picking things out and deciding what to invest his money into for it, he went with stuff that he knew for the most part, right? And so you get a lot of Westerns because he liked Westerns. You get a lot of like men's adventure, you know, globe traveling pulp hero kind of stuff. You get a lot of that because he understood that and he liked it. Um, but he didn't really get science fiction. He didn't really get, uh, you know, horror. These were just not things that appealed to him. Um, so now he is suddenly wealthy, right? By like 1924 or so, he has more money than he's ever seen in his life. He's taking care of all of his relatives, uh, including Harvey, who has, you know, taken off to Canada with a bunch of his money. Um, and so he decides one of the things he wants to do with this new large amount of money is to buy some land and open up a hunting resort. So he buys some land on Big Pelican Lake in Minnesota. And in 1925, he opens uh, a resort there that's called Breezy Point Resort. And Breezy Point Resort, like pretty much everything else that Wild Billy is touching in the 20s, is a gold mine of like money basically for him right it's basically it's a very nice set of you know fancy cabins and a casino and you know a bunch of other kind of like buildings on the shore of this gorgeous minnesota lake so it was a hunting preserve it was uh you know like a gambling uh house basically and he violated prohibition pretty much constantly 
uh, you know, so he he could pay off the police not to pay any attention to him, um, and basically allowed people to come and drink illegally at his casinos. This made him, of course, fabulously popular, um, and a lot of Hollywood stars, basically, who liked uh, you know that kind of lifestyle, right? Who were into hunting, who were into heading out into the woods for their vacations or whatever. Breezy Point became a you know a, 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 a hip place to do that sort of thing, right? Clark Gable hung out at Breezy Point with uh, Carol Lombard, and Clark Gable and Wild Billy became friends. Captain Billy became friends. Um, Tom Mix, the cowboy western star. Uh, was Captain Billy's one of his closest friends, basically, and his like hunting partner on a regular basis. Harry Truman comes to this, you know, casino to drink illegally and uh, and and hunt. Right before it's well before he's president, but it's he's still, you know, an important first a judge and then a politician while he's there. Um, so he's got all of these celebrity friends. He's also, of course, while he's doing this, because he's paying off, uh, you know, cops and, uh, you know, importing uh, booze from Canada. He's making a lot of friends with mobsters. Uh, this, you know, is kind of obviously like a, a recurring thing uh, in the comic book biz. Uh, you know, like so DC and Marvel, both started by people with uh, who were probably not mobsters themselves, but were awfully friendly with some of them. And uh, Captain Billy became awfully friendly with uh, some well-known Midwest mobsters. Um, Isidore Blumenfeld, Kid Can Blumenfeld, uh, was uh, a, a frequent uh, guest at the Breezy Point resorts. And uh, he would go on to uh, have a couple of notorious murder trials in the mid-30s, um, in which uh, Captain Billy's second wife, in fact, uh, would be a witness in a couple of the murder trials. Uh, he... Gets married a second time, uh, like as, as we said. It's, her name is Annette, um, and she comes from, uh, shall we say, like the you know the the mobster society of Minneapolis St. Paul. Uh, she knew all of the uh, you know all of the crooks basically in the city, um, and had associated with a number of them. And uh, she and uh, Captain Billy got along great. Captain Billy uh, bought the St. Paul and Minneapolis boxing clubs. Uh, and so he owned, not only did he own like the place that like all of the uh, local fighters uh, trained in, but he also owned stakes in several of the fighters themselves. So, you know, he got a portion of their winnings and that sort of thing when they became successful. During all of this, while he is, you know, becoming wealthy and, uh, you know, building up this thing, he continues to compete uh, as a marksman. And he actually is was a member. He he made the team uh, for the U.S. Olympic team in Paris in 1924. Uh, he got to travel to Paris and compete in the trap shooting uh, competition in the Olympics. He finished 18th uh, out of the you know hundred and whatever people that were in the competition. Uh, so he didn't really come anywhere near a medal. Uh, but you know he was well in the upper. 10 or 15% of the people who were, who were doing it, he scored very well. And of course, it became just one more story, right? Like Captain Billy was a great storyteller, was a great kind of like entertainer, uh, you know, had a lot of friends who loved to hear about his crazy tales. He uh, traveled the world. He became a big game hunter. He would travel to Africa to hunt big game. Um, and so like going to Paris and being on the Olympics team, that was just another story from Captain Billy. 
right? And like most of his stories, as it turned out, were true, you know, and like the ones that didn't were close enough, you know, that were that, that were still entertaining. Uh, he discovers that uh, his second wife, in Annette, is cheating on him. This uh, should not have been a terrible surprise since uh, she'd been cheating on her previous husband with him uh, a few years before. Um, and so he divorces her in 1932. Um, during this time, she has made friends with Harvey, his brother. And when she gets her share of, uh, you know, the, 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 the divorce proceedings, basically, uh, she heads off to Calgary and joins Harvey there and becomes a partner, uh, business partner in his magazine company. Um, how exactly that must have worked is a complete mystery, right? Like there's very little detail on how this came out. Um, was she having an affair with Harvey before that? Nobody really knows. Uh, but the two of them wind up running. Uh, their publishing company becomes a success once she shows up there. And the two of them wind up running the Calgary Morning Newspaper. They published the Calgary Morning Newspaper there for uh, a couple of decades, basically. So Billy is this, you know, just like this, this, this larger than life figure, right? And uh, his kids by the 30s uh, have now, you know, grown up to, they're in their late teens, early 20s, and they're starting to, uh, you know, kind of like join in on the company, right? Like all the first people that he hired were mostly his brothers um, and assorted other kind of like professionals they brought in. But now there's a new generation of faucets coming along and uh, his two youngest sons are working for him directly. And they tell him, you know, Minneapolis is great, dad, but um, if you really want to be serious in the pulp publishing business and the magazine publishing business, we need to at least have an office in New York, right? We know you want to stay here in, in Minnesota where you can go, you know, shoot elk and whatever it is that you're doing all day long. Um, but we need to have an office in New York. And uh, he agrees. Uh, you know, Billy agrees. He's not dumb. Um, and so they set up a company in New York City in 1934. They set up an office, basically, for Fawcett, what is now called Fawcett Publications. Um, Gordon, one of his sons, also sets up a production house and office in Los Angeles uh, to handle West Coast distribution. In 1935, Billy marries his third wife. Uh, this one is his secretary, actually, uh, on a trip to uh, Tijuana. He, uh, he he takes her to Tijuana for a weekend, and they get married while they're while they're there. Uh, and you know, this was a bit of a surprise to the rest of his family when he returned with uh, his secretary as his new wife. But that was also just that's just Captain Billy, right? Like he was the the kind of guy who would do something, you know, on the spur of the moment, uh, you know, sort of deal. By 1936, he's got now 10 or 15 of the you know 50 biggest selling magazines in the US. This is a tremendous, tremendously successful company. Uh, Captain Billy's Whizbang itself, the original one, has started to kind of fall out of favor, right? Like men's magazines like that have kind of like gone in different directions. They, they're the combination of, uh, you know, kind of like lowbrow humor and, you know, tales of, uh, you know, hunting adventures and that sort of thing seems a little old fashioned by 1935, 1936. And, uh, you know, prohibition, that, that's a, you know, fight that went away, basically. Now we're in the Depression. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it, it's over as a battle. So Captain Billy's is kind of like looks a little old, a little dated. And uh, Captain Billy himself says, you know, this, uh, yeah, I agree. It's time to close this down. So he shuts down um, 
the original Captain Billy's Whiz Bang in 1936. Uh, so now he's got uh, his offices in Minneapolis. The corporate headquarters of Fawcett Publications has been moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, outside of New York City. So he's got a place that he can stay there and do kind of like the regular business. And then they've got a publishing house in New York City on West 44th Street, uh, right in kind of, you know, like the center of, uh, uh, of the, the, the publishing business, right? Like the publishing world of New York City. Um, he's there with the, you know, the, the, the serious book publishers and the other magazine publishers and everybody else. They're all within, you know, 10 or 15 blocks of each other out there. Um, and of course, when Captain Billy came to New York, uh, he had all the introductions he needed to the underworld of New York, right? Like all of the mobsters from Minneapolis knew all of the mobsters from New York City. And so when Captain Billy moved out there, he had a list of names of people, you know, like, hey, you should go see this guy, tell them I sent you, you know, sort of thing. So he had set himself up very comfortably with the other publishers, uh, particularly magazine publishers, but also people like national periodicals and that sort of thing, who were tied into the mob. Right. So and of course, the mobsters found Captain Billy to be hilarious. He's all kinds of fun. We should invite him to every party and we should totally back whatever you know he's doing and we'll sell him all the paper he needs for his publishing companies, et cetera, et cetera. He was he fit right in. So Captain Billy has not taken care of himself uh, physically at this point. So by the late 30s, 1938, 39, he's in his 50s. He's overweight. Uh, he's, his, uh, kidneys are failing him. His, uh, you know, liver doesn't look so good. Um, and, uh, he, you know, is, has, has kind of like been forced to, uh, give up some of like his partying lifestyle. And he pretty much doesn't even come into the office anymore. And his two youngest sons are kind of running the, 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 the company for him. And Roscoe, his youngest son, is looking around at everything that's happening in 1939 and he sees what National does with Superman as a comic book and says, that's amazing. You guys have made a pile of cash. Comic books are going to be the hot new thing. Uh, you know, kids love them. This is a great way to build an audience, you know, for us as a company. Fawcett should totally be in the comic book business. And uh, Billy is just like, sure. I don't care. Uh, it's not something that I, you know, am am, am interested in per personally. But I am always in favor of making money. So if you can figure out a way to make money, uh, go ahead and do that. So Roscoe Fawcett um, goes to two of the editorial directors from Fawcett Publications. This is within the first, you know, five issues of Action Comics, right? That's, while this is happening, Action Comics has become a hit and there have been a grand total of four or five Superman stories at this point, right? We're really early in the process. And uh, Roscoe goes to uh, Al Allard and Ralph Day and a couple of other, uh, you know, known publishers, known editors within Fawcett who are working on some of their magazines and says, we need another Superman. He's quoted in court, actually, as like having told them, what we need is another Superman. But here's the thing. I have a better idea for Superman. What if our Superman was actually a kid? What if our Superman was actually a 10 or 12-year-old, and then he could turn into Superman? 
right? So then you would have, you wouldn't need a kid sidekick or anything. You wouldn't need an identification character, uh, you know, any of the, the you know, a teen hero or, you know, a teen uh, uh, assistant, because the main guy, the main hero would also be the kid at other, at other times, right? That would be the greatest fantasy in the world for a 10-year-old boy. So they say, okay, that, hmm, that's really interesting. They turn to a couple of their uh, people working for on, on other magazines for them. Bill Parker was a staff writer on a bunch of different uh, Fawcett publications. He was one of the senior editors at Mechanics Illustrated. Um, and Parker had come to magazine publishing. He had actually been in New York his entire life. He had been a sports writer uh, for the New York Herald Tribune and came to Fawcett as an editor for um, several of their magazines that were kind of like sports related, right? Like that was kind of his, his entry in was that like he could write about baseball and he could write about football and he could write about whatever. Um, and then he also did a few of the um, crime, the true crime magazines. He did a couple of the detective magazines. Um, and then eventually he kind of like expanded. Everybody agreed he was a good writer and a good editor. And he picked up some things that were kind of like out of his areas of expertise to start out with. He did some of the movie stuff. He did some of the mo movie gossip. Hey, what is this, you know, hot actor? Who's, who's he dating now? You know, kind of thing. Um, and then also Mechanics Illustrated, which was, uh, you know, kind of like the uh, magazine at the time for, you know, people who were messing around with their own cars. So Bill Parker, you know, is one of the guys that uh, the, the Fawcett, the Roscoe Fawcett thought was, you know, like the smart guy in the room and said, what do you think about this? So Roscoe didn't really know and had, had not heard of Superman before this, never really thought about the idea of a superhero before. And he went home and thought about it for a bit. And he came back to Roscoe and uh, Al Allard and said, what if we had a whole team of superheroes? It would be like uh, King Arthur and the Round Table, right? There'd be like six or seven different guys. And you could use them in different combinations. And each one of them would be the best in the world at something, right? Like one guy would be as strong as Hercules. And one guy would be super fast, and one guy would be super smart, right? And like each one of them would have a would have a great skill or whatever, and they would they would be a team. It'd be kind of like uh, uh, Doc Savage and his his fabulous five, right? And Roscoe said, "Yeah, no, we're not really interested in that. This is aimed at kids. We don't want kids to have to learn, you know, six different guys and keep them all straight in their heads and everything." Um, but I like the idea of being the best in the world at each of these things. So I'm gonna combine that idea with the idea we had over here of the 10 year old kid who turns into a grown up, who turns into a, a Superman kind of character. And what we're gonna say is, okay, this character that we don't have a name for yet, he will have been given these gifts by the gods, right? Like each one of them will have will give them uh, a, a thing that they represent, right? Like Hercules will give him his strength and Solomon will give him his wisdom. And somebody probably raised their hand at that point and said, you know, Solomon's not a god, right? Like he's an actual historical figure. And they said, Shh, shut up, I'm working. So, you know, <laughs> dismiss that entirely. Uh, but then Mercury will give him his speed and Achilles will give him his, his toughness. And uh, as long as we're throwing around uh, gods out here, maybe Zeus gets involved and Zeus gives him the ability to throw lightning bolts around. That would be super cool, right? You know, Superman can't do that. That would be great. The classic, uh, you know, great abilities, uh, you know, might, uh, strength, and the ability to throw lightning bolts. And throwing lightning bolts around, right? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, that's uh, Bill Parker was just like, uh, sure, yeah, absolutely, why not? 
Uh, and, you know, so you've got this kind of like cockeyed pantheon of, of gods, basically, that are, you know, like giving this guy uh, powers. And so they eventually kind of like narrowed it down to six and messing around with the, you know, order of the, the letters and everything. They gave him, they decided, well, this kid's got to like transform fast, right? Like it's got to be a thing that when he, when he turns into the hero, so he should just have a magic word, right? It should be just like Alakazam or something like that. And so messing around with that, basically, Bill Parker created the word Shazam out of the first names of all of the, you know, gods, quote unquote, or mythological figures or whatever that were giving this kid the powers that he was going to have. I'm like, hmm, okay, that's cool. We're on to something now. What should, what should we name this guy? And they couldn't really come up with a name for a bit until, once again, Bill Parker says, well, he's throwing lightning bolts around. That's the coolest thing about him, right? Like, that's the thing that makes him different. Let's call him Captain Thunder. And everybody says, Captain Thunder, that's a fabulous name. Well, let's go with it. All right, what are we going to call the comic that we're putting all of these in? Now, at this point, they've got like a lead character, basically. Bill Parker and uh, uh, the, uh, the main artist that they brought over, who's a guy we'll hear a lot about uh, in, in, uh, as this goes along, uh, whose name is uh, Charles Clarence Beck, C.C. Beck. Uh, it, uh, the two of them have been sitting around, and they're working on several different superheroes, right? They're, they're, you know, Bill, Bill has kind of like uh, taken on this assignment full on, but they still know we don't have a full comic here yet, right? And so they go to uh, a couple of packagers. They go to Harry Chesler and a couple of other packagers. And if you want to learn more about how packagers work, go back and check our D history of DC, uh, where we go over those, and our history of Timely as well also mentions them. But, uh, you know, Fawcett did the same thing and went to uh, a packager to pick up a couple of extra kind of like fill-in features that would fill out their comic, right? Because they figured, you know, even Captain Thunder is only going to be 10 pages a month, right? In their, in their comic. Um, we'll come up with two or three other new guys ourselves, and then we'll get features from other people. And then that will be how we fill out our comic. Uh, so they're like, okay, well, what are we going to call this comic? Hey, I've got a great name for a comic. Let's call it Flash Comics. You know, it kind of like goes along with the whole thunder and lightning. It's a flash in the sky. Oh, that's great. Absolutely. Let's do that. They get, you know, a month into working it, and DC puts out a comic called Flash Comics, starring a hero called The Flash, who fortunately had nothing to do with lightning, but he was, you know, super fast and that sort of thing. Um, and so they're like, ah, we can't use the name Flash. All right. Uh, what are we going to call this magazine again? Then let's call it uh, Thrill Let's call it Thrill Comics. Oh, that's great. We love this. And, you know, like two weeks after they announced that they were putting out Thrill, uh, uh, Centaur put out a comic called Thrilling Comics. And they're like, damn, that's too close. That's going to, people are going to be confused. What are we going to call this thing? So they finally, uh, looking around, somebody says, you know what? Fawcett got its start with a magazine that was called Captain Billy's Whizbang. Why don't we call it Whizbang? And somebody said, well, whiz bang, that doesn't sound, that sounds kind of like old fashioned, but just whiz, hey, that sounds kind of cool, right? That sounds fast and it sounds exciting and it sounds like, you know, like that kid's a whiz, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a positive thing to be. So we're finally going to came to a title for this character, uh, for this comic, and we're going to call it Whiz Comics. And Whiz Comics, starring the adventures of Captain Thunder, uh, they printed an in house ash can version of it, a black and white version, just to kind of like establish the copyright and everything and have an idea how it would look. There are only, uh, you know, so a very small number 
of those ash cans of, of, of Wiz number one, and they're worth a fortune. Right, they are you know they're fabulously expensive if they ever come available. Um, it's one of those titles that there's so few of that really you can't even put a plausible price on them, right? It's like how much does the uh, how much is the Mona Lisa worth, right? There's just there's there's just the one, right? Like you can't you know, uh, it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. The 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 Wiz Comics number ones, you know that that exist as Ashcans basically, are just worth whatever are just preposterous, right? They're not even really collectible. Um, but while that was out, Wiz Comics number one comes out, they discover that uh, Fiction House has a character called Captain Thunder. This is ridiculous at this point, right? They've gone through all of the different names for their title, and then now they discover that, like, that somebody else is using the name of their character. Captain Thunder from Fiction House isn't even a superhero. Captain Thunder is a guy named like Joe Thunder, basically. It was, he was just an ordinary guy, and it's a, it's a soldier of fortune adventure right like he was off you know having uh interesting adventures pull as a pulp guy in africa right you know kind of thing but his title was called captain thunder because he'd been in the army um and uh, his actual last name was thunder so that's what they were calling him and they were like damn now we got to start over again with another name they started throwing around more names in which uh eventually cc beck apparently is the guy who actually came up with it who said captain marvel that's the name of our guy and so finally, Wiz Comics had a name and it had a lead character. And its lead character was young boy Billy Batson, uh, who uh, you know, was a you know, streetwise orphan, basically, um, gets offered, go, you know, finds a secret passage through uh, the subway system in New York City to get to a mysterious uh, mountainside where a wizard uh, basically grants him these incredible powers. And when he says the wizard's name, the wizard's name is Shazam, and when he says Shazam, he is struck by a bolt of lightning. Captain Marvel can no longer throw lightning bolts around. That was kind of like rejected as, a, as, uh, as part of the story. But now he is struck by lightning uh, every time he says his name, and that transforms him, or every time he says Shazam, that transforms him into a big strapping hero with a cape and a costume and everything who can fly and who can, you know, lift cars and is just uh, uh, enormously effective, right? He's, he's a, he, he becomes, a, you know, the world's greatest hero, the world's mightiest mortal, he is described as. Uh, and that first cover of Wiz Comics number two, which is the first one that actually goes out to uh, newsstands. And so Wiz Comics number two is listed everywhere as the first actual appearance of Captain Marvel because there really wasn't a Wiz Comics number one. Wiz Comics number one was never offered for sale. It was just an ash can, right? So Wiz number two is the first one to actually go out and be on the stands, and that is the first appearance of Captain Marvel. And of course, that is uh, worth a great deal of money. Um, there's considerably more of them actually out there available. There's literally dozens of them that uh, you know are, are floating around in uh, you know collector worlds, collectorsville. Um, but it's you know a fabulously uh, uh, expensive piece, nevertheless. Um, and uh, the cover of Wiz Comics number two is, shall we say, a really obvious reference to Superman because it's basically the same scene as Action Comics number one. Our hero has picked up a car full of miscreants, of criminals of assorted, uh, you know, and has picked the car up over his head and is kind of like shaking the people out of it and then hurling the car uh, to smash into a wall. 
right? That's the that's the shot on the cover. It is basically the same image as Action Comics number one of Superman, except Superman is smashing the car into a tree and you see it from the side, right? They have, uh, Wiz Comics number two has kind of like, what they think improved that image because now Captain Marvel is throwing the car out of the picture at you, right? So it's a it's a more of a like a, a better action shot. Uh, CC Beck is in fact, uh, I think very few people are going to disagree with me uh, on this. Is in fact a much better artist than Schuster was, right? <laughs> right? He could stage stuff better. His uh, his characterizations were more interesting. He had a very kind of like cartoonish style that uh, was very different from other superheroes that were being done at the time. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very exciting style. It's a very expressive style. And he could stage an action scene like nobody's business. So the cover of Wiz number two is just, it's fabulous, right? Like it's a, it, it's a fabulous eye catcher. And of course, when it came out, it was a tremendous hit. We're going to talk about like the, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about the stuff that's in it uh, next week, basically, next ep- next episode. But to finish this one, basically, we should just kind of like leave off with the idea that Wiz 2 sells out the door in tremendous quantities. And absolutely the editors and uh, owners and lawyers for national publication take very strong notice of it. And they are not happy with this superman ripoff that is suddenly selling so well yeah i mean it's it it's almost like they uh didn't really think that the legal thing was ever going to be an issue they they couldn't imagine it right like this was this was yeah. junk culture right like who yeah. would who would sue somebody over a comic book what a ridiculous thing to sue somebody over right yeah. but then when you realize how much money was actually involved with the best selling comics suddenly it become makes a lot more sense as to why you know the the, the lawyers would get uh uh, would get into the mix, and they will definitely get into the mix uh, between these two companies over the next, you know, twelve years, basically. Absolutely, but that's the story for next time. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker, and I'm Darren Watts. Good night. Thanks for coming.